Well, good morning, Bellingham Covenant Church. I am Stephen. I'm on staff here and happy to greet you on this first Sunday after Christmas. Really excited to share this message with you today. So back in 2017, two of my favorite Cascade volcanoes got into a fight with each other on Twitter. I'm referring, of course, to the internet smack talk that was going on between our state's tallest peak, Mount Rainier, and its shorter, more volatile cousin to the south, Mount St. Helens. To be clear, these, these weren't two actual volcanoes that were squaring off with each other. Some, someone or some ones thought that it would be funny to create social media accounts for all the Cascade volcanoes and then have them try to trash talk one another online. And I don't know how long this feud had been going on, but the tweet that caught my attention was this one. It's one that Mount Rainier directed at Mount St. Helens in November 2017. It's a series of four frames with those iconic successive pictures of the whole north side of Mount St. Helens blowing out on May 18th, 1980, and a single word overlaid on each of the four images. You had one job. And then the icing on the cake, these two delicious words from Rainier, explode normal. I mean, honestly, St. Helens, don't you even know how a volcano is supposed to erupt? Now, whether you think one anthropomorphized Cascade volcano talking trash to another is funny or not, I happen to think it's hilarious. And it touches on this very human feeling of not wanting to fail at something big, not wanting to mess up the one thing that matters. You had one job. Don't be like Mount St. Helens and explode all weird out the side, okay? Well, our scripture for today focuses on a couple of perhaps lesser known characters, characters who only appear for the briefest of moments in the whole grand narrative of the, grand narrative of the biblical story, characters who literally had one job. Our Advent series has spent some time doing character studies of different people in Jesus' birth narrative. We've talked about Zechariah, Joseph, Mary, and the shepherds. And now, on this Sunday following Christmas, we come to Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna are these two sort of enigmatic figures who appear for just a few verses in Luke's gospel, and then they disappear just as quickly, never to be mentioned again. Well, today, Simeon and Anna are going to get their due. We will read their story and hit pause for a few minutes to see what we can learn about these two delightful bit players in the drama of the Christmas story. Beyond just learning about them, I hope and I pray that we can learn from them because in a real sense, we are called to be like them, waiting and praying in hopeful expectation for the coming of God's salvation. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. 
Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. What is it that makes Simeon and Anna worthy of making it into Scripture at all? Why did Luke choose to include these little cameos for us? Well, clearly he wanted to say a few things about Jesus himself, who he was, why he had come, and so forth. But I also think that he wanted us to learn a thing or two from these characters. I'm not one to make heroes out of biblical characters who aren't actually heroes. I mean, that's what we tend to do, right? We, we see that King David or that Moses or someone did a good thing, and then we try to turn them into this moral example to follow. But that doesn't do justice to the complexity of their characters, which are often very flawed. It also doesn't do justice to the gospel, which is about taking very imperfect characters and welcoming them into God's family. But in the case of Simeon and Anna, we are given so little information that pretty much all we can see is their good side. They were undoubtedly flawed people like the rest of us, but what we see in the biblical account is really one key character trait that I think we're called to emulate. The term that I am drawn to when I think of Simeon and Anna is just this, single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. They are undivided and undistracted in their pursuit of what God has called them to. As the meme from earlier says, you had one job and Simeon and Anna carried out that one job remarkably well. They were single-minded in their pursuit of it. So how can we see this single-mindedness play out in the text? Well, first of all, we see their devotion. Simeon, it says in verse 25, was righteous and devout. And we might take these words to be almost synonymous because we're not super careful with language these days, but these are two different concepts in Hebrew. To be righteous meant essentially to be rightly related to others. It's a social word, and it means that you do what is right and ethical toward other people as well as toward God. It's this rich relational word, and it probably at the very least means that Simeon wasn't some random hermit living in isolation from everyone focused only on his relationship with God. The righteous ones are righteous because they do what is right toward others. So what about devout then? Simeon is both righteous and devout. Now, devout is a much less common word in the New Testament than righteous, but it, it means probably just what you think it means. He was pious, he was reverent, he was careful in observing and doing what was right and proper. This word focused more on one's relationship directly with God. Well, righteousness includes others. And for her part, the text doesn't come out and say directly that Anna was righteous and devout, but it shows you she was always in the temple, it says, and she worshiped and fasted and prayed. So this is a portrait of devotion to God. One other interesting tidbit uh, on this point, Simeon uses this fascinating, fairly rare word to refer to God when he opens his mouth in verse 29. It's often translated in English as sovereign Lord, and it has the sense of a master of a household who manages servants. And then Simeon goes on later in verse 29 to refer to himself as a doulos, which is a, a servant or a slave. He has a very clear sense of how he is related to God not as one who demands or who cooperates begrudgingly, but as a devoted servant of his master. So I'm in the process of rereading The Lord of the Rings right now, and I am taken again with the way that Tolkien describes the character of Samwise Gamgee, the friend and the gardener and the fellow companion of the story's main character, Frodo. 
It's Samwise, I think, who ends up being the most heroic of all the characters. There's this simple little hobbit who he just wants to live a quiet life in the Shire, but he ends up doing these tremendous things, mainly because of his unwavering devotion to his master. I imagine Simeon and Anna as sort of Samwise characters, fiercely devoted to their master, unwavering in their commitment to their Lord. Okay, so devotion is a key part of this single-mindedness. What else do we see in Simeon and Anna that is worth considering? This one's a bit more abstract, perhaps, but I think it's there if you look closely enough. In both Simeon and Anna, I see an openness to the leading of the Spirit coupled with a solid grounding in Scripture. Let me say that again. I see in both of these characters an openness to the leading of the Spirit coupled with a solid grounding in Scripture. So what am I even talking about? Well, I feel like if you hang around Christians long enough, you might start to get the sense that many of them and their churches can fall into these two broad camps. There's the Spirit people and there's the Bible people, for lack of better terms. You know what I'm referring to, right? Spirit-led folks are open to the leading of the Holy Spirit in literally everything. They drive around the Bellisphere parking lot, asking God to lead them to the right parking space. They pray for their food before they even order it. Lord, what do you want me to get today from Jack in the Box? All right, I'm kidding a little bit, but you get the point. These are people who live out the reality of the doctrine that Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that they have direct access to the Lord of the universe. If they are driving down the road and God says to pull over and to pray for that homeless person on the sidewalk, you better believe that they're going to do it. And then there are the Bible people. These are the ones who love their scriptures. Maybe they make you feel bad because they have memorized so many verses. They not only know all the names in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus' family line, they know how to pronounce them all in Hebrew. And whether they say it or not, they are pretty well convinced that the Bible holds an airtight answer to most any situation, any question, any circumstance that might arise in life. Now, if they're not careful, these two groups can end up at odds with each other pretty quickly. Mutual suspicion abounds because it gets at the heart of what Christianity is. Are we a religion of the book or of the spirit? It's easy to see how sitting exclusively in one of these camps or the other can quickly lead to distraction from our true purpose. On the one hand, we might think that if we just study the Bible hard enough, if we crack its code, so to speak, that we can figure out exactly what's going to happen and when and what we should do about it. That's the temptation of the Bible people. It's a form of idolatry, actually, which is weird to say but it's possible to fall into worshiping the Bible rather than the God that the Bible reveals. On the other hand, it's also very tempting to consider the Bible as a sort of, you know, helpful background material to our relationship with God, but ultimately to leave it behind as we strike out on our own with the spirit leading. This is the temptation of the spirit people. I think after all, if I have a direct unmediated connection to God, then why do I need the Bible? I'll just listen to the Spirit and it'll all be good. Except that there is just no biblical precedent for this. Of all the people who should have been able to pull this off, Jesus would have been it. I'm the Son of God, folks. No need for me to use Scripture. The Holy Spirit and I are pretty tight, right? No. Jesus used Scripture all the time. He quoted it. He interpreted it. He reinterpreted it. But he didn't leave it behind. 
So in this false dichotomy between being centered on the Bible or centered on the Spirit, I think Simeon and Anna show us a different way. So notice at first that Simeon seems like a spirit guy. It says that he'd received a revelation directly from God telling him that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah. And then he was moved by the Spirit to go to the temple at just the right time in order to meet Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And then he gives kind of a direct, you know, thus saith the Lord prophecy to Mary about who her baby will become. So he's a total spirit guy, right? If he lived today, Simeon would probably have gone to one of those ribbon dancing churches where they run up and down the aisles, right? But if we look a little closer at what he says in verses 29 through 32, his his hymn to God, you'll notice that he speaks in language that is steeped in scripture, In these few verses where he mentions seeing God's salvation that's been prepared in the sight of all people, which will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles, this is imagery and language taken from the scriptures and the traditions of Israel, mostly from the book of Isaiah. He's not making this stuff up out of thin air. He has spent time in God's word, and so when the Spirit nudges him, he can recognize the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And let me add that this is no small feat. As becomes evident later on in the gospel, pretty much no one else recognized that Jesus was the Messiah until they had seen and experienced a whole lot more than Simeon had. Few people expected a Messiah to come in the way that Jesus did, and yet Simeon's mind and heart and spirit were ready to see the Messiah in the face of a little baby because, one, he read his scriptures, and two, he listened to the leading of the Spirit. So we see devotion to God, an openness to the Spirit combined with a grounding in Scripture, and finally, we can see that Anna and Simeon are very clear about where their salvation comes from and where it doesn't. So Jesus was born at a difficult, pivotal time in history. He was a member of a people group whose land had been occupied, whose population had been subjected to the rule of a foreign superpower, The possibility of rebellion and insurrection was constantly in the background. Tensions between ethnic and political and religious factions were high. And there was this very natural desire in the hearts of most people to see it all set to right and fixed. God had prophesied that his people would be a chosen nation, a light to the Gentiles. Well, where had God gone? Why was all of this taking so long? The people longed for salvation, for wholeness and flourishing and justice. And whenever, wherever there is a deeply felt need, people and institutions will arise to meet that felt need. Salvation was being offered by any number of different individuals and organizations. If they wanted salvation and they wanted it now, then Anna and Simeon had their pick of options. They could have sought a political salvation. King Herod had done a masterful job of manipulating the Roman occupiers as well as the different factions within Israel to get things done. He'd built a huge temple, all sorts of public works. He offered a sort of salvation that maybe required some dirty backroom dealing, but it was all in pursuit of a higher goal, sort of. Be cunning enough about things and you could get your way. I mean, sure, you'd have to give up on some of your principles. Certainly some innocent people would suffer along the way, but gaining and using power requires that sort of stuff, right? Or if people didn't care much for Herod's way, they could have gone the other direction. What about the zealots? Where Herod tended to manipulate and to compromise with the power brokers of his day, the zealots stuck to their guns. 
They were a group of religious radicals who were bent on gaining Israel's freedom through acts of violence and terrorism. Of of course, they wouldn't have called it terrorism. They would have dubbed themselves freedom fighters or something like that, standing up for their God-given rights. They surely prided themselves on being serious about their faith and their principles, deadly serious. Sure, these things that they did, assassinations and things like that, they seemed to go against a lot of what God desired, but it was all ultimately for a good purpose, right? Violence for the right reasons could be justified, right? Or if neither Herod nor the zealots seemed like a valid choice, people could have sought a form of salvation in removing themselves from society. The best-known representatives of this option were the Essenes. They declared themselves to be God's true chosen ones, and then they moved out to the desert to live their holy lives and read their holy scriptures and wait for God to come and save them while he laid waste to the rest of the world. So Anna and Simeon have options. And some of these are pretty attractive choices, to be honest. They sounded like they just might work. They sound not too different from the ways that we try to seek out our own salvation these days. But when it comes down to it, neither Simeon nor Anna see salvation in a political leader or in violent revolt or in total withdrawal from the rest of society. They see salvation in the face of a a child, a child of a poor young couple who were far from home and in way over their heads. They see salvation in the quiet and the humble, and the patient, and the long-suffering. They see salvation in a person. The way that Simeon holds the baby Jesus and prays to God, my eyes have seen your salvation, isn't a metaphor or a figure of speech. He's saying very literally that this little human that he holds in his arms is the salvation that God had prepared for his people who had lived in bondage and misery for so long. The rescue has begun. The battle is joined. There's a verse in the ancient hymn, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence, that has been stuck in my head lately. This is a hymn that speaks of Christ taking on flesh and becoming incarnate, so it's heard around Christmas. And in fact, Kristen and Jeanette are going to lead us in it in, in just a few minutes here. But this Christmas hymn isn't all about stables and shepherds and silent nights. The verse that I've been dwelling on goes like this. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way. As the light of lights descendeth from the realms of endless day, that the powers of hell may vanish and the darkness clear away. I'm not much for military metaphors when it comes to the faith. I think they tend to be overused and not always super helpful, but this is a stirring image, both of the first advent as well as a vision of the advent to come when Christ will return in glory. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way. This is the image of an army, a heavenly host charging into battle. The vanguard is that foremost portion of the army, the first to reach the enemy lines. And if this were a Hollywood movie, of course, the next thing that you'd hear would be the crash of armor and swords and horses and spears, and you'd see slow motion gore and all of that. But this hymn is delightfully different. What happens is the host of heaven encounters this army of darkness. The powers of hell vanish. The darkness clears away like a morning mist 
in the sunlight. Because this is not a battle of two evenly matched armies. It isn't some cosmic struggle that we don't know the outcome of. This is a battle of darkness and light, and there's simply no contest. The darkness flees, vanishes, melts in the presence of the light of lights. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, Simeon and Anna saw and proclaimed that light, the light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to God's people, Israel. And Simeon not only saw and worshipped and blessed that light, he held him in his arms. The child at the head of the invading army of heaven come to vanquish the powers of hell. Others missed it. The powerful, the important, the self-righteous, and those consumed with their false visions of salvation. They were too busy with their own plans and ideas and priorities that they missed the Messiah. But Simeon and Anna, because of their devotion, their openness to the Spirit, their groundedness in Scripture, and their clear vision of what salvation actually meant, they were ready to embrace, to worship, to proclaim this child, salvation himself. So may we remember in the midst of our busyness and distractions that we too have just one job. We aren't to seek after and strive for our own image of salvation, but to watch and to wait and to listen and to long for the salvation that is to come as the darkness clears away. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for these two uh, bit players, Simeon and Anna, these two people who, who are just a blip on the radar in the biblical story. These two people who in some ways could seem so unimportant, Lord, but they are a reminder for us of what a life of devotion, a life rooted in the scriptures, a life of listening to the leading of the spirit, a life of seeing salvation for what it is, they're a reminder of what a life like that can do and be. We thank you that these two recognized you, Lord Jesus, that they held you in their arms and that they proclaimed you. Help us, Lord God, to be like that, to be the Simeons and Annas, though we may not have big parts in this whole story. Help us to be the ones who wait and long for you, we pray. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.